Hey, everyone. It's Brian Underwood. Um, hopefully, you're enjoying the, the podcast. Uh, appreciate you guys plugging in, uh, supporting it. Uh, please keep leaving reviews. Uh, we definitely want to hear from you. Um, also, today's uh, podcast is going to be a little bit different. Uh, I sat down with the world-renowned Dr. Lillian uh, Mohika Parodi. Um, about her thoughts and experience with COVID-19, um, also some cutting-edge research she has going on and her perspective. She is just an absolute brilliant mind, uh, one of the top scientist researchers in the world. Hope you guys enjoyed this uh, conversation. It will be a little bit longer, but uh, there's a lot of value and perspective in it. So hopefully you enjoy. Keep proving it every day and there to be you. Hey there. Hello. Hey, how are you? <laughs> good. How are you? I am doing good. I mean, first, uh, I'd love for you to just kind of share with everyone your background. Obviously, I, I know you, Dr. Lillian, and uh, you have, uh, uh, you know, your bio is pretty long. I don't think I could cover it all just in a, in a quick snapshot. Okay, so I can, I can summarize. Yeah, just okay. everybody. Okay, so I, I'm uh, Dr. Lillian Mujica Parodi. I'm a professor of biomedical engineering at Stony Brook University. And I also have an appointment at the Martino Center for Biomedical Imaging at Mass General Hospital and Harvard Medical School. So that's a lot of like really far out, like high level stuff um, that uh, kind of share with everyone. Like, here's the thing that's funny is the first time I met you, I don't know if you remember, but it was, uh, I think it was at IHMC. It was at IHMC, yeah. Yeah, with Dr. <laughs> I remember we were walking back, he's like, She's like a real serious scientist. Like she's <laughs> like you have to get her to talk and, um, um, but kind of share with everyone, like what that means, like, what is it that you all do? Uh, and what, what is it that you focus on? Like what's, what's your passion right now? Um, so actually a, a lot of people don't realize that originally I studied philosophy. Um, and I think, um, for a long time, I thought that was sort of irrelevant because I wound up becoming a scientist. But um, the area of philosophy that I was doing was logic, which is uh, kind of a, a branch of mathematics where you're really trying to reason carefully um, and draw conclusions. And I think that that informed the way I went about becoming a scientist because uh, I'm often in the position of trying to understand some new area by going back to first principles. And what I mean is that the way a lot of every field works, not just science, is that you know a lot of people have been doing work in some particular field and then somebody takes the next step and then somebody takes the next step and then somebody takes the next step. Um, and most of the time that works really well. Some of the time that doesn't work well. And the reason why is that somewhere along the line, made somebody made an assumption and that assumption got embedded in every question that the field asked after after that point um and so i think kind of the way i moved into fields and at this point i have moved into many different fields um is that i like to um sort of approach things from the ground up i like to go into some new area and say you know what, I know nothing about this particular area. Um, but if we had to sort of go back to first principles, how would we think about the problems that matter most to this particular field, and then work on it from the ground up. So um, at this point, um, originally, I, I moved into psychiatry, and exactly working in that way. To me, psychiatry made no sense. 
Um, I had, after I had worked in logic, I was moving into theoretical physics. And then from physics, I went to psychiatry, from psychiatry, neuroscience, and then biomedical engineering, um, you know, endocrinology, neurology. I've been dabbling in economics. And I think that um, even though these seem like a lot of different areas, the the tools that you develop in solving problems and thinking through problems from first principles, once you have been doing it over and over again in many different fields, you start seeing commonalities. Cool. So I bet we've been moving around a lot. My lab is unusual. I think most labs tend to work in a particular area and they work on that same thing, you know, for 30, 40 years and they're world's experts in that particular area. My lab tends to move around a lot in terms of what we work on. Um, I have a very interdisciplinary group made up of engineers, mathematicians, physicists, computer scientists, doctors, nurses, and so forth. But then I try to take those individuals and have them approach lots of different types of questions from an interdisciplinary background. That's awesome. You know, we're doing this via Zoom because we're kind of in this uh, crisis situation, or if you want to say this disruptive situation that, um, you know, a lot of people... Uh, around the world have a ton of uncertainty, um, you know, and I think that one of the things that we're really wanting to do as a community is find different ways to bring certainty every single day. Because I think it's normal, right, to wake up and say, what does all this mean? Well, you know, what's, what's, when's it going to be over? Like, how long is it going to be? I know those are questions that literally I ask every single day. Um, mm-hmm. uh, well, you- so, yeah, so I, I actually, um, I mean, just speaking personally, so what happened was that, um, I, I started experiencing these, you know, these flu-like symptoms. It was actually kind of a weird situation because I had a sense that very soon we were going to all get quarantined, probably a couple of weeks before it happened. And so there were some people that I figured I wouldn't be seeing for a long time, like the, you know, the attending of our medical school and so forth, of our emergency room. And so I decided to throw a dinner party and invited all the people I figured I wouldn't see for a while uh, to this dinner party. And so we invited a bunch of people. We had a wonderful dinner party. I did a ton of cooking and whatever. And then, uh, and then I started feeling sick. And, and my first thought was, oh, my God, you know, I mean, I just threw a dinner party. What if I got it from, from like, the attending of the ER? What if I you know, or what if I transmitted to someone else? But what happened was that I started, you know, with the sore throat and fever and, um, uh, you know, chills and all of that stuff. But the the thing that was most prominent, I, I, when I noticed this first was that I had this weird burning sensation in my lungs. So I do high intensity interval training uh, regularly. And so I was doing my thing and I do it regularly. So it's not hard for me anymore. But I felt this burning sensation in my lungs right from the beginning. And I thought, that's weird. Um, And then it just flattened me. I was having a lot of difficulty breathing. Um, So I wound up going to the emergency room and there was a nurse. Her name was Nonette. Um, She's a wonderful Jamaican lady. Uh, I was in a sort of an isolation room and the thing she kept telling me, so she had to get administer the test and everything. It's a, it's really a two part process. Cause the first part is that you eliminate other options 
And then the second part is then they have to confirm that it's COVID. And because the tests were in such short supply, they won't do the COVID test unless they've eliminated the other options first. So they did the first test and it wasn't that they eliminated the other options. So then they do the COVID test. Now, the procedure that she had to follow was not particularly difficult. It was something that probably she did all the time in terms of flu swabs. But emotionally, the fact that it was a COVID test and that these tests were in such short supply and that she was, a fright, she was frightened of getting it, it really affected her. She was extremely nervous. You know, her hands were shaking. The first time she did the test, she sort of messed up and had to throw it away and was terrified that she would get in trouble because she messed up the test and there were so few of them. The second one, she was very nervous. And she kept saying to me, you know, I can't get sick. I have got these kids. My, my own health is not that great. I can't get sick. And I felt so sorry for her because here she was, she had to show up for work. She's being exposed. We're in an isolation room. She's wearing, you know, a shield and a mask and everything. And, um, and clearly she was terrified. And long story short, I'm not sure that that test was done properly. And what happened also afterwards is the set test wound up getting kind of lost for a couple of weeks. So when it came back negative um, a couple of weeks later, you know, it was really, it was hard to believe that it was a true negative because the symptoms, you know, difficulty breathing and this burning sensation in the lungs, they're not typical. And given that these other things had been ruled out, um, it was really hard to explain what else would have caused those symptoms. And so um, I think that sort of the general consensus is, yes, it probably was COVID and, and I guess we'll confirm that or disconfirm it um, when I have the antibody test. But anyway, the thing that kind of stuck with me are two things. One is that it was something very, a very interesting feature to my symptoms, um, which was they, they, they waxed and waned. They became stronger and weaker. And even like with the temperature, the temperature would come up and then it would go down. It would go up and then it would go down. The difficulty breathing, it would become worse and then better, worse and then better. And it was very interesting to me that there were these fluctuations. And it started me thinking about whether there, this, these fluctuations might be telling us something really important about the behavior of how the virus attacks the immune system and how the immune response is actually attacking the virus. Um, and so I, I asked the doctors in the emergency room about it, and, and they didn't really know anything about this. And, but partially it was also because they weren't measuring in ways that would allow you to see it. Because in order to see fluctuations, you have to be measuring continuously. And they don't measure anything continuously. Um, the second thing that was really striking to me was that this nurse was so frightened and so actually, while I was still in the emergency room, you know, there's a lot of downtime when you're in the ER, um, I contacted the head of this company, um, or the, the, the contact that I had at this company called Oura, O-U-R-A. I don't know if you're familiar with them. Oura rings? Yeah. Do yeah, you yeah. have one? I do. Um, I don't have it on me. I, I've been wearing the Whoop. I don't know if you're familiar with Whoop. It does similar mm-hmm. types. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah, similar track. So a lot of us now are into these, like the quantified self, you know, measuring all these, uh, these continuous measures, which is a game changer in terms of medicine, because normally a doctor takes one measurement and then you come back at a year later, they take one measurement. Um, but if you want to look at 
how physiology is responding to things, you actually have to see the, re, the sort of attack retreat type behavior that I was talking about. So I thought, well, so this is a great opportunity to measure these biological signals continuously. And in a population, these healthcare providers who are very frightened, who really are worried for their own health. And the thing you have to remember, of course, is that healthcare providers, when they get sick, they aren't just a patient because they, because they treat other patients, that their illness affects not only them, but every other patient that they would be treating. So it, it scales differently than individual patients. And so um, I was able to make some contact with uh, a, a wonderful lady um, at the hospital who's in charge of telehealth. And both she and I, I mean, we, we and then the, this company, everybody got on board very quickly. Um, I contacted the head of the medical school. He got on board very quickly. And then within a couple days, really, we were able to put together a plan to basically get a thousand aura rings into New York, distributed to our hospital and other hospitals to cover um, healthcare providers at the front line. So individuals in the emergency room and ICU. And so that's kind of what we're in the midst of right now. I mean, in addition to all our regular work on dementia, you know, on the brain aging, on, on everything else we're doing, this is actually something that we're trying to roll out in the next week to 10 days. So how is that going to work? What, what, um, what are y'all going to be looking at? Like sleep, recovery? Yeah, so um, it, it, the, it, it provides continuous data on temperature, um, ECG, so heart rate, and activity. And some of those can be combined to also give you information about sleep, sleep quality. Awesome. And so you're just trying to find variables that, uh, I guess my question is what would, what would, what, what would be the best outcome that you're? So, okay. So there's the different layers of outcome ranging from low hanging fruit to increasingly ambitious. So the low hanging fruit is that it allows every healthcare provider to monitor himself, you know, during the course of this whole scenario as it unfolds so that they themselves have a sense of how they're doing com comparatively with where they were before. Um, but because we're working with the hospital, this is also going to integrate the healthcare provider's medical records, their own medical records, which means that after all of this is done and we have all the data collected, which includes not only their continuous measurements over months to up to a year, and then also their healthcare records, what we want to do is to basically release this into the wild and allow anybody who wants to take a crack at it using deep learning algorithms, their own, you know, proprietary algorithms, whatever they want to try. We want to see, okay, the next level would be, can we actually predict the onset of illness earlier than as early as possible? so that there's early detection. And in fact, Aura was already thinking along those lines. They already had something similar going on on the West Coast. But thinking even more ambitiously, um, can we go further than that and actually predict uh, the, the course of the disease for those who are already infected? 
Because when I described these fluctuations, you know, that the symptoms were waxing and waning, again, I have a feeling that that's a signature of a healthy immune response. So it's very frequently the case that, that when you see, you know, the mortality rate associated with these sorts of diseases, it's not an, a lack of an immune response that winds up killing you. It's actually, it's, it's an immune response that turns on and then it can't turn back off. And so what happens is that it turns on and it, it becomes like a positive feedback loop. It gets stronger, stronger, stronger. And it's actually the immune system that starts producing symptoms like, you know, those inflammation in the lungs and so forth that winds up killing you, or the immune system pushes itself so strongly that it eventually breaks. And so I was hoping that, that there are features about those fluctuations that might be able to tell us something about an individual's response to the, this virus or any virus that would allow us to get a predictive sense of where is that trajectory going? Are they going to recover very quickly? Are they going to recover but with a lot of difficulty? Or are they not going to recover at all? And the benefit to that is that it would allow us to triage resources. Because um, right now, I mean, the, the biggest difference between COVID and, um, and the flu, from my perspective, as far as I can tell, is not the death rate per se. What is most striking is this 20% number of people who wind up in the ICU. Those are individuals who may not have died, but they are consuming scarce resources, right? And that's actually what's hitting the medical system. And so if you had a better sense of who is going to require those resources with several weeks lead time, then actually you can triage and prepare much more effectively. Interesting. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that they're also talking just about some of the damage that either the lack of resources or um, how someone's being treated. Uh, there's going to be also damage after the fact, like people that do recover, um, you know, what it, what damage it do to their body in that recovery or, or, um, it's true. I mean, after two plus weeks of, of sort of gasping for breath, um, my plan was to have a chest CT. I mean, my doctor had ordered a chest CT, but the, the problem is that, um, because it was considered likely that I'd had COVID, I, the only place for me to do that was in the ER, you know, because everybody's wearing protective garb and everything. And I just didn't want to be anywhere near the ER. But it's true. It's, it makes me wonder, you know, what damage does that actually cause to your lungs long term? Is there scarring? Is there some other, you know, long term damage? Right. I don't know. But you feel better today, right? I feel fine. Uh, the true test will be once I start sprinting again. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Uh, we just sent out uh, ketones uh, for those that are on the front line. Uh, or mm -hmm. Healthcare system. If they requested it, uh, we have a form up, and we're sending it to them. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, just uh, even as an energy source. Uh, but is there? But we're constantly looking for things that we can do to help contribute. And so, you know, I guess um, from your perspective, what are some, uh, you know, personal things that you would share with with everyone or biohacks during this time uh, to do to give themselves, you know, the most optimization or the best protection possible? So I think my answer might surprise you, which is that I think the number one lesson that I've taken from this whole experience in terms of protecting yourself and your 
your uh, medical condition is vote intelligently. Um, and the reason I say that is that um, I think there's a tendency to vote ideologically um, and to vote based on considerations of shared identity, meaning I describe myself as having some set of characteristics that are important to me. I see someone out there, a candidate who has those same characteristics that are important to me. And I say, okay, I am XYZ, they are XYZ, therefore I will vote for that person. Um, or, you know, my tribe votes this way. I'm a member of my tribe, therefore I'm going to vote in the same way. And I think that the reason why I, I bring this issue up is that, you know, we talked earlier about the issue of scaling, that when a doctor becomes sick, it's not, that doctor is not just a patient, that doctor is a, a, a kind of a hub for all the individuals they would treat. And I, I think that way about public policy, that someone who makes public policy is actually affecting the medical environment and treatment options and how people behave so much more that one, than any one individual saying, oh, well, wash your hands, don't touch your nose, and so forth. The reality that is that whether you win this battle or lose it is very much in the hands of people who make public policy because what will make the biggest difference is finding a cure. And finding a cure is and allocating resources. And both of those things, finding a cure and allocating resources, are things that occur first and foremost at the you know, public policy level. So um, I'm hoping you know, uh, that these are issues that people are, are now realizing. There's a little bit of a luxury when there's no real crisis to say, oh, you know, you know I, he looks like the kind of guy I would have beer with or whatever. Um, but when things get tough, you realize that you really have to rely on the judgment of people who have to make informed decisions. Um, and I, as a scientist, I see that there's a, a real kind of um, responsibility to play a role in public policy because a lot of the decisions that are made are based on information um, that scientists are working with in various capacities. So I would love to see public policy become more data-driven. But in order for it to become more data-driven and evidence-based, it's really going to require a change in the minds of voters because that's not what we're selecting for right now. Right. Yeah, and it, do you think that that might also, I mean, that would take, for a lot of voters, a complete different shift in um, their even understanding of what public policy, I think, is. Uh, yes. So many of the voters, they don't have a, a, a perspective that, you just gave, right? You know, they are voting just based on um, narrative out in the, in the world or in the news. Uh, yeah. Who's charming? Who's engaging? Who do I want to listen to? But very often the people who make the best leaders are individuals who have the best judgment. And that doesn't always get accompanied by being charming. Sometimes people with fantastic judgment look boring. And I think that we have a process of choosing leadership that is selecting for the wrong characteristics. We're really selecting for charisma rather than substance. 
and judgment. And I think, you know, where you feel it is where you have a crisis. Right. Like right now. Um, like right now. That's right. Um, excellent. So um, right now, I guess you, you guys are, are staying um, quarantined and hunkered down. Yes. So what does your daily routine look like? How has it shifted a little bit? I am so much more productive than I was before. And I'm sorry to say that because I know there are people who are suffering horribly. You know, I know that for, it really depends on the type of job you have. There are some people who are without income. Um, and I have, uh, my husband and I have a patent on a piece of equipment that's manufactured by a company that has had to let go of all of its workers because they have no income coming in. And uh, it's, it's terrible. Um, but for the kind of work that I do, um, this quarantine has really made me rethink the nature of how work ought to get done, what environment it ought to get done in. And I think that after all of this is over, I will run my laboratory differently and I will structure my, my work differently in terms of my environment. So um, basically, I get up and the first thing I do is uh, I run my meetings, meetings that are going to be phone calls, let's say phone calls with the hospital, phone calls with the IRB. Um, these are more administrative phone calls that involve um, problem solving and so forth, but aren't going to be Zoom meetings. They're going to be phone calls. And what I do is um, we have in our backyard, essentially, a public park, which is many, many miles. And I'll go for, let's say, a two-hour walk in the morning with the dog and take care of all those meetings. And so it is really amazing to be able to do all this problem solving and figuring out the stuff at the hospital, the, the stuff I was describing with you um, regarding to the aura rings and all this, doing that at the same time that I'm walking the dog. It just seems like I'm getting this stuff done, I'm getting exercise myself, and I'm exercising the dog all before 10 a.m. <laughs> it's, it's like, oh my God, why did I never think of that before? That's brilliant, you know? Yeah. And in the woods, like what better way to start the day? So we're doing like, you know, at least three miles in the morning. That's awesome. And then, and then um, my day is structured. So uh, there are group meetings, meaning in my lab, we have various projects. So the ketone project is one of them, but I have many other projects as well. And those start, those are 1 to 2 p.m. Um, so there are groups of people that zoom in and have those discussions. And then in the evening, I have half an hour with every member of my lab. Um, so that's just checking in on them, making sure, like, what did you get done in the last week? Making sure that I have a very clear idea of what they're doing. They understand there's some accountability. If there's some problem solving, that gets taken care of right away. Um, and then from 4 to 5 p.m., I have a mandatory social hour, which is for the lab members, they can Zoom in with each other. They chat. They talk about whatever. How's their day going? Um, sometimes I join in. Sometimes I join in. don't join in. I think sometimes it's better for me not to be there so that they can feel more comfortable. <laughs> Don't you do that at like 5 to 5.30 every day? It, it's like a happy hour, basically. It's so necessary because 
I was worried about the effects of social isolation on the people for, who work for me. And I was worried that they themselves might not even realize that they were being affected by it. And so this is providing sort of a time for everybody to sort of check in with each other. But it also actually, by the way, because we have a designated time for checking in with each other and socializing, it also means that people can tune out before then so they can focus on what they're doing on their work. Um, because it also doesn't work if you're trying to get stuff done and people are pinging you all day long, then you actually don't get anything that's, done. That's an issue that I have. I mean, I've become more productive, kind of like you said, because I'm setting up Zooms like this. So it forces mm -hmm. me to be present, to be, you know, because I have like five or six of them today, like at the top of every hour. However, yeah. in between sometimes I get pinged. Like if you ever came into our office, Lauren can tell you, sometimes I'll pull my hair out because I'm constantly reacting instead of, coursing my day because people come in the office they have this they have this they have this so i found yeah have that um so no deep thinking can occur when that occur when that, that's happening and so it's much better to have a designated time for it i think then everybody sort of pools whatever issues they have between four and five lily will be available for whatever you know that's right Awesome. No, I know uh, I've taken a lot of your time. I truly appreciate you spending time mm -hmm. with us. Um, okay. Right. You're Take awesome. care. Say Take hi care. to Nancy for me. I will. Bye.